Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, Digital Editor. In this episode, we take a look at New Directors New Films, a festival co-presented by the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Museum of Modern Art. The program's 45th edition opens with Babak Anvari's feminist Iran-Iraq war horror film, Under the Shadow, and closes with Kirsten Johnson's decade-spanning documentary memoir, Camera Person, crafted from footage she shot while working on other directors' projects. To discuss these and many other movies in New Director's New Films, I was joined by Eric Hines. I'm a writer. I write a column for Film Comment on uh, documentary film, and I'm associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. I'm David Fear. I'm a senior editor and writer for Rolling Stone. Amy Taubin. I'm a contributing editor to Art Forum and Film Comment, and uh, I'm on the selection committee for the New York Film Festival. Thank you all for coming today. Um, so today we're going to be talking about films that are in New Directors, New Films, the series that is put on by the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the Museum of Modern Art. Approaching this program, or at least, I guess, approaching any new film, there's a, you know, in reviews a lot of times you'll see a critic mention, this is clearly a first film, or this, or sort of qualify their praise by saying, this is a first film. What does that mean to you? And I guess, um, how do you approach a new filmmaker and sort of, do you sort of change the artistic yardstick? Well, to me, it all really sort of boils down to a vision. Does a, I mean, whether, you know, you're looking at a filmmaker who's got 20 films under their belts or a, a new filmmaker, it really is about, you know, what are you saying? What are you expressing? What can you show us? Um, for a new filmmaker, for a first-time filmmaker, it really is, this is your opening salvo. This is your introduction. And there are, in my mind, it's part of the reason why this festival is one of my favorite film festivals in New York, is that it is a festival of discovery. And there's that wonderful feeling you get when you, out of the blue, suddenly realize that you're in the hands of somebody, even if those hands are a little shaky at first, uh, who has something to say, who has something to show you. And you walk out of that theater or that screening feeling like, I've just met somebody who I'm going to put a lot of, I'm going to put a lot of chips on the table for this person. I really want to see what he or she does down the line. I don't uh, particularly think about whether it's a first film or a 20th film. Uh, very few films are perfect. Films are interesting if they have a place from which they speak. And if it's a place that you've never seen or heard before, then it's interesting. It's an interesting question regarding this festival because I think I've actually never thought of it as being the first films festival. Um, because even I think what you're referring to is like often if it is a debut film, that's something that you mention. Um, to me, these are I think what's what's great about the programming of this festival is to me even if this is a first, second, third, fourth film, there's something about them that feels they've arrived, whatever, one way or the other, these are already sort of works that are worth considering. Um, so for, for some, that might make it even more special because they're new, but to me, it's about, yeah, it's about the film itself having brought something rather than the, the filmmaker. You know, I will say this, though. Uh, a first-time filmmaker often does have an advantage in that they, there can be the shock of the new. When you're seeing, I don't know, say the 30th film by Martin Scorsese, you can't help but weigh it not only against other films of that genre or other films that you know, it may superficially resemble, but Martin Scorsese's entire filmography, you know, how does this rank to how he, what he was doing in 1978 or 86 or 94? 
And with a new filmmaker, you're essentially saying like, like you said, what what are you saying here? What where is this coming from? And the fact that you don't have to weigh it against like, well, it's not as good as his fourth film, but better than his third film, or you know, she's not doing as good a job as she did with her first film because this is her sophomore slump. You know, it's an entirely different thing. I think, uh, though, if you look at early films by filmmakers today, they're very different from looking at early films by people back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. People make mistakes today, they're digital mistakes, and they have an infinite amount of time because they're not paying anyone anything to correct those mistakes as they go along. When people used to shoot on film, you couldn't afford to correct your mistakes. You either did the scene right out of the gate or you were stuck with it. So first films today and second films and third films and 90th films don't have those awkward moments where, oh my God, you'll never get this scene to cut together, but you need some part of it that something like... uh, Oh, I don't know. I don't want to mention films. Um, uh, Who's that knocking since we brought up Scorsese? Just has these incredibly awkward moments that if he had been shooting digitally, he wouldn't have had. That's an interesting point. It's also, you bring up filmmakers in the past and how there was a sense of apprenticeship. People were going through studios or kind of learning the craft. I mean, there's Altman's first film, and then there is M.A.S.H., which is considered the first Altman-esque film. That's really what feels like the first Robert Altman film as we know him as a filmmaker. Speaking of craft, one of the films that, uh, the closing night film, Camera Person, uh, Kristen Johnson, uh, that is something that, speaking to you beforehand, all of you were really, seem to be drawn to. Uh, Yes. I mean, I was on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, like a raving lunatic about how much I loved it. So I don't. I mean, I feel like I should probably not be the first person. No, to no, about no. It. I wasn't. You don't have to go. <laughs> um, but I was going to say uh, there are actually quite a few documentaries in this year's lineup, and I think it might be interesting to sort of talk about the differing approach to structure in, you know, say Wiener versus Camera Person versus Behemoth versus Peter and the Farm. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I would jump in and just sort of say that, I mean, it's, an, it's, a, it's interesting to sort of approach it that way, but to me then the, the, the differences between, say, Camera Person and Wiener are so vast. Like, yeah. to me, like, Wiener has far more in common with maybe some narrative films in, here and elsewhere than Camera Person does, that, that there is, because we have this, this bifurcation of documentary and narrative films, uh, that can, I, th- I think, in a, in a way, that can, that can lead us down paths of, of yoking films together that really have very little in common. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because if you were to look at, say, Wiener, uh, Behemoth, and camera person, I mean, these are three very, very different types of, of documentary. Wiener feels very much like a standard documentary, sometimes to its detriment. Mm. Um, something like camera person feel, I mean, it's clearly designed to be a memoir. Uh, the director, Kirsten Johnson, states this in a disclaimer card at the very beginning. Look at this, these various scenes that I have shot from being a camera person for documentarians around the world as a, as a living memoir, as sort of a, a moving snapshot book. And it's incredible how she manages to make a very personal film that also talks a lot about why we make documentaries, mm-hmm. why we go see documentaries, what happens when you take a camera around the world for numerous people and film these things, and to see what almost feels like stuff that would have ended up on the cutting room floor in other films kind of strung together 
it really does feel like there's this incredible external and internal dialogue going on. Um, I think it's just an incredible, incredible film. And then you look at something like Behemoth, make sure I pronounce his name right, uh, Zhao Lang, this Chinese filmmaker that's looking at the coal mining industry in Mongolia and how it's kind of just raped the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's incredible in that there are these, there's this voiceover narration and these sort of floating, wandering characters that go through in the midst of these very typical Verity scenes that really does make it feel like a hybrid. It, it's this incredible example of what you can do when you make a poetic documentary as opposed to a didactic one. And it ends with, I, I want to say it's the filmmaker, but I'm not sure, wandering through this abandoned city that was essentially made for these workers that no one lives in because the industry has just been gutted and it's gutted this population. And you have this incredible sense of a mix between a typical documentary and one of Terrence Malick's better films. I saw part of Behemoth. I had no interest in it whatsoever. I can't imagine why anyone would want to sit through that shot. I have no patience with slow cinema at all. I mean, I think slow cinema is a cliche, and I think when young filmmakers come into what is now called slow cinema, they just buy into the cliche. So I didn't make it through it. Yeah, you need to be on that wavelength, or else Um, that film will not work for you. I don't think it's a wavelength to be on. I think it's a cliche. A cliche is not a wavelength. I've just looked at all the Ackerman documentaries because I wrote about it for the box set. And she had a reason for the length of shots that she made. And people have just glommed onto this without a place from which they speak. So, you know, I have no patience. As far as a camera person goes, I think Kristen Johnson is a wonderful camera person. I think she is really an extraordinary human being. I didn't think this was a film. I didn't think that this... um, It kept wanting to make... uh, I don't know how to say this. You had these scenes, and they were obviously extremely moving. And it's obviously extremely moving when she gets to that thing that she wrote when she, in 1975. And you see that this is a person who, at least at that point in her life, believed in God. And it is very hard to believe in God, given what she's gone around the world filming. And that, for me, that was the moment at which it became something like a film, rather than around the world we go and we look at horrors. You know? That it took a level then of thought that was not in the things that were being seen. So I think there's a film in there, actually, but I'm not sure it was quite made. It's, it's funny you mentioned that because as I started watching the film, I, I was wondering, is this going to be nothing but a nightmarish travelogue for 90 minutes? And I think you've kind of pinpointed the point where it starts to become something a lot more personal. And like you said, edges more towards being a film. I would argue that it's, it's still a film through and through once you've seen it from start to finish, but I totally concede your point. Yeah, I wouldn't concede that point. But I feel like there's a... <laughs> Uh, there, there does, there's different types of films, and I feel like there's, I mean, I, I think there's the selection of shots, selection of places that we go to, and each cut 
there's such intelligence and, and purpose behind every cut of that film in terms of linking one image to an, to another, one location to another. To me, that's the sort of the, the, the basis of which sort of all cinema is, you know, it, the idea of like one shot and juxtaposition for the other and a narrative created out of that cut. And I feel like that's what it's doing throughout and I also think that there are ideas that are being explored there are themes that are explored there's essay length uh, points or, 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 or notions being explored between between shots but then also I think cumulatively over cumulatively over time there's the ethics of documentary filmmaking there's the sort of how to be a human being while also being a filmmaker how to sort of do a job but then also be a human um, you know and and you know, when to intervene uh, there, there's just there are so many things that I feel like are, that we, especially as writers, we, we we pull out of films and documentary cinema, and we think we're the I think we often think we're the first people to to discover these issues. Like we like we identify in documentaries all these sort of ethical problems, and I think that what she shows is not only is every day in shooting a documentary an ethical challenge. She's I think found a way of stringing together through. 32 sources or whatever it is um, probably the best articulation of, of 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 the ethical journey and personal journey that it takes to make documentary films so for I guess so, so for me there's I guess there's just so much that it brings that I've just not seen a single film bring that I, I, it, it's hard to sort of even have a comparison about what other film is like um, and I guess that's what I'm excited about would you like to respond? No, I mean, I think if that's what you saw, <laughs> that sounds like a great film. We could return to your um, your complaint against slow cinema. What is the sign that someone has given in to this impulse or this trend, as opposed to sort of purposefully using a long take? I don't. I mean, I, obviously, you can't count the seconds and say it's okay to have this yeah. many seconds or not. It's when you start saying, why is this going on like this? And is anything, is the film actually saying anything about time by doing this? I mean, and of course that's what the Ackerman films do. They make you think about time. And obviously I'm a person who came up through Warhol and Michael Snow and Chantal Ackerman and didn't have a problem about them, but there is something like about reinventing the wheel and there's also reinventing the wheel, wheel when there's less on the screen than the initial invention. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say. Well, it's interesting. Like, I mean, I feel like what you're, you're articulating something that I often feel and suspect in terms of slow cinema is that it's become something of a cliche and, and that there's an affect there in a lot of films, especially over, over the last 10 years or so after there was a strong impulse toward it among certain filmmakers but I think I think I didn't feel that way in Behemoth for me I saw Behemoth as kind of a movement of young independent Chinese cinema that is trying to figure out form in a way that could somehow articulate some of the things that are going on in their lives and in their culture and their country and so to me it's though I can see what you're saying in terms of it being uh, evidence of of maybe the cliche of so, of so cinema to me I guess I was gravitating I was accepting some of that stuff because there was also an exploration of form that I think David was bringing up in terms of uh, dramatization and and there's stylistic elements there the sort of fractured 
tableaus that we returned to in terms of the naked body and the landscape that uh, to me reminded me of some other recent independent Chinese films. There was a, there was a retrospective at MoMA, I think, mm. oh, not a retro, but a, a series at MoMA like six months or so ago um, that there, were, there was a, a bunch of these films which I had never seen before, some of, some of which I had, but most I had not. And it was interesting to me how there is, it seems like a generation of filmmakers who I don't think it's necessarily maybe slow cinema is one of the things that's that, that they're bringing with them, but it seems like this sort of hybrid documentary um, approach seems less like an affect and more like a reaching for 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 some language that is, does not exist yet to try, try to somehow articulate what they're what they're well, kind experiencing. Of, sorry, it kind of exists in Zhajanka. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, very much so. And sure. so I think all these films are derived from from that, from that but. He is a master of time. But I feel like slow cinema, very like much like fast cutting or various other aesthetic, you can call it technique, you can call it affect, they constantly get overused. They constantly turn into cliches. I, I feel like it's, it, you see tons of these kind of things where you just feel like, oh, this is supposed to be significant because it is long. And yet there are times in Behemoth, or I would look at a film like Los Muertos, where you really start to feel that the duration becomes mesmerizing, almost transcendental, and you really do feel like something else is happening by keeping the duration of these shots, by staying in this space for so long without being torn out of it with a cut. Um, that's how I feel about you know Ackerman's films, and that's how I feel very much about Behemoth, especially some of those longer things near the end, where I really feel like it becomes this very mesmerizing experience for me. Then stepping back, it's sort of like, I mean, listening to all three of us, we, we know what we're talking about and we know the limits of it, but we also have different responses to different right. shots. And I think that that is the mm-hmm. sort of thing that can't help but be subjective right. because... Right. The subjective question of how long is too long. Right, yeah. right. But, I mean, Amy, exa- what, what you, the last thing you had said before David and I started yammering about is, is, is the most important thing, which is what are you saying about time? And, and that's always the question that I have. And, and uh, it's interesting how certain approaches to, to length of shot make me very impatient and grumpy. And then sometimes I just feel like this could go on forever, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about Ackerman is that often I get incredibly impatient and grumpy, but that's part of what's happening. <laughs> like she knows very well that she's testing my patience and that's part of the experience that's that she's actually looking to orchestrate. Yeah, no, I mean, I just looked at South for this thing and, and South was a film that when I first saw it, I thought this is an incredibly problematic film. She has no idea that in digital it doesn't work to have these long shots because there's not that much information in the image. And this time, you know, the first shots are just as problematic, but at 30 minutes, they pay off. And you see why there's this shot with only this one African-American guy on this empty road way, because, you know, it's... It's that story that comes up then in uh, Camera Person, you know, but it's a different film right. about that killing. Right. Um, uh, pardon my memory lapse. What was the last film that Miss Ackerman made? No Home Movie? No Home Movie. No Home Movie. The first scene of that, how long does that go on for, the scene of the the branches swaying in the wind? It goes on for quite a while, doesn't it? Runtime, it's yeah, almost impossible. I mean, it's, you know, you think, why is she doing this? Yeah, why is she doing this? And that's when the impatience starts to come in. Mm-hmm. And... I can guarantee you if having gotten to the end of that film, if someone had dimmed the lights, like put the lights up, dim the lights again and started that scene one more time, it would have, it would just have me in tears mm-hmm. 
it was the notion that uh, why am I watching this? And by the end of the film, I knew exactly why I was watching mm -hmm. this. And uh, you know, I, again, that's why I say I concede your point. It is the the difference between seeing somebody who just keeps a long shot and thinking if I keep this long enough, people will be fooled into thinking that I'm saying something profound, versus being in the hands of a master. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think who we who we would consider masters and using this effectively or not is um, it's apples and oranges and pomegranates and Chantal Ackerman. <laughs> A large part of Ackerman's films is, is uh, this concept of playing with minutia and, you know, the idea of the home and the everyday. And a film that really stuck with me was uh, Amanda Rose Holmer's The Fit, because it captures so many, like, that's ex like when I think back to being, being in middle school, being in high school, those are the moments that I think of, or at least the way in which she organizes space and what parts of... Uh, you know, this girl's life gets shown. Like it's, it's never, you never see her in class. You never see her in front of like reading a textbook. She's always, you know, it's always after school. She's always with her friends or she's by herself doing something very, I don't want to say personal, but sort of, you know, related to, there's this one part where she's just like picking off the, um, the nail polish on her fingers. And it was just like, so wonderful. Um, yeah, <laughs> but... <laughs> and it's funny because we've been talking about how like certain aesthetic affects can become a cliche in the wrong hands and mm -hmm. transcendental in others. There's a scene where the character, I believe her name's Royalty Hightower is the actress's name, Yes. where her character is on an overpass. And we've been seeing this very athletic young woman. She's a tomboy who boxes with her brother. And we've been seeing mm -hmm. her work in the heavy bag and, and just being this very, very athletic young woman try to learn how to dance within this dance group at this, uh, I believe it's Cincinnati? Cincinnati? These yeah. are Cincinnati. Cincinnati Community Center. And she can't quite get the movement. She can't quite sync up with these uh, these other young women in this, this dance group. Mm -hmm. And then there's a moment when she's on an overpass and she suddenly finds her groove. Yeah. And it alternates between doing this very kind of sped up film and this very sort of slow motion thing. And normally that's the kind of thing that just gets my hackles up because <laughs> it feels like such an easy get. I'm going to just aesthetically pound you into emotion as opposed to actually bringing it out. And I remember watching that in a theater and just like getting goosebumps. Yeah, you like want to stand up and cheer. <laughs> exactly. I felt so ecstatic watching her being ecstatic up there. And partially it's the performance, partially it's the visceralness of that scene, and partially it's what the filmmaker's doing. And that to me is like, that's when all the gears just like kick in. Oh, I, I just, I love those moments. I live for those moments. It moved me more than Rudy. <laughs> well, I hope royalty comes because I saw the film at Sundance and I saw royalty and the filmmaker on stage. Royalty is a scene stealer. She never. Oh my she, God! Yeah. She. It's impossible for her to keep still for one minute <laughs> on the stage. She just was. Oh, I'm royalty. <laughs> but she said the hardest thing for her in the film, which was that, of course, she's been dancing right, she's since she was dancer, five. Yeah. She is a dancer. Right. It was hard for her to do the boxing. She had to learn to box. and so, She does bad dancing very well, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> he really nails it. And it was even so yeah. <laughs> that moment is really extraordinary acting that she does there. And, you know, I saw it at Sundance as well, and it was interesting to see it at that point in that environment because it was right when that hashtag Oscars so white thing was everywhere and people mm -hmm. were talking about race and representation and you know who gets these parts who gets acknowledged by the academy and the larger bodies that that kind of thing and to be at that festival this year when there was so much stuff about race going on and you watch the fits 
and you realize until there's a counselor that shows up, I think, 80 minutes into the film or 70 minutes into the film that you have not seen a single white character. Mm -hmm. And significantly, that character is out of focus. Yeah. <laughs> you see her through a window. She never quite comes into focus. The characters go in there, and then she, she's gone. And everybody else in that film is African-American. It is, it is a stunning example of, like, how to really let somebody tell their own stories, and despite the fact that it is coming from a Caucasian filmmaker. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah I mean, it, it sort of explodes that conversation a little bit in the right ways. Yeah, nicely really, put. There's, there's this t very rare terrain, almost unto itself, that it, that, it, that, it, that it stakes out, which is that it's, on, on one hand, very, and there, it works within realism. You're mm -hmm. watching somebody, bodies in motion, you're watching locked off cameras, observing people in, in the frame, and yet there's also this sort of element of unreality and almost like peanuts quality. The fact that you don't meet parents, you yeah. don't meet teachers, mm -hmm. we're just in this space. What we see is there's, there's such a construct to the fact that we only see certain types of interactions between people. Right. Well, you we basically see, see the gym mm -hmm. and her route to and from it. That's all you That's see. That's all you see. Yeah. And, and, and there's also something, uh, even though we're dealing with, with, with pre-teen figures who are working through rough um, like an awkward moment of their lives which we see in all its glory or, or lack thereof there's something also kind of romantic about it too the fact that like her relationship with her brother is like this incredible dream of a relationship where he's supportive of her he encourages her he doesn't make fun of her right. he cheers her up you know and then like uh, and you see like difficult relationships and friendships as well but you get a chance to see just really wonderful supportive interaction which yeah. is just such a decision because that's just talk about like working against the cliche like this is an environment where we're only supposed to see awkward awkwardness and you know we, we brought up the notion earlier of like what does a first-time filmmaker mean and we've all kind of said well whether it's their first film or their 20th film you know we don't we just want to be wowed and have you know hear what they have to say it is amazing to think that she is essentially a first-time filmmaker the woman who made this and she's balancing tones in a way that I don't think a lot of veteran filmmakers could pull off. There is the notion that there are times when you're watching this very kind of documentary like you are there realism. And then there are times when you have this kind of Darden brothers aesthetic where the camera is consistently following over her shoulder as she's going throughout hallways and from, you know, to and fro. And then without giving anything away, there is this slip into magical realism at the end mm -hmm. that feels totally of a piece. Again, one of these things that normally I'm just like, oh, come on. You know, you did not earn this. This film earns that moment. And again, it, you'd have that ecstatic reaction of watching this happen where you don't care whether this is a metaphor that they're being, is being presented. You don't care if this is something that is literal. It feels completely of a piece with what is being said. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Well, that's how deep into that character you are at that point. You have to yeah. really sell us on that point of view and that experience, and she does so that really you can accept anything that is her experience of that. And it's clearly mm -hmm. an extreme experience of that character. And yes, so we're, and we're right there with it. You know you're in good hands. Mm -hmm. Were there any other films that you've seen uh, so far that have struck you in the same way or sort of, you know, um, immersed you in their worlds so uh, convincingly and completely? I would say Demon, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, I know this has been playing around. It made a big splash at Toronto. Unfortunately, it became very overshadowed by the sort of uh, outside the theater story that happened when its, it's uh, filmmaker, Marcin Rona, took his own life right after it had premiered. It's a really, really amazing Polish horror film. 
although I, I hesitate to give it any sort of categorical label or genre. It's It starts with this young man who goes to, he's getting married, and he stumbles across a skeleton right outside the hall where he's getting married, this sort of construction site. And it something gets unleashed. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a Dybbuk. I don't know if it's a ghost. Uh, I'm assuming it's a Dybbuk because he starts speaking Yiddish at one point. But essentially, this person who has passed, this sort of ghost bride that is haunting the wedding, possesses him. And uh, a priest at the wedding, along with the rest of the family, needs to sort of exercise it out of him. And it's it, it doubles very nicely as this instant look at Polish society in which you know the past is never the past. You can't bury it. You can't escape it. Um, a beautiful film, and it just makes me feel the loss of this this filmmaker all the more. I mean, for me, I haven't seen that many. Maybe I saw seven or eight films. By far the strongest film I saw was Under the Shadow. It takes a very standard genre. Is this really happening, or is there some strange, horrible demons on the loose? Or is this in her mind? And it's about the trauma of living inside a war for, that would have been five years by then, because it takes place in the middle of the Iran-Iraq war. And people are walking around saying it's an Iranian film. Of course it's not. She was born in Iran, but the film could not be made in Iran, although it's in Farsi and it takes place supposedly in Tehran. Uh, but the money is from different sources, and it's uh, it has things in common with the Babadook because it's a horror film about a mother and a child. And is the horror actually horror? Is the supernatural for real, or is she going insane because she's been living in this in this trauma zone? Uh, I think it is a truly amazing film. It terrified me. I, you know, I saw this at Sundance, and it's funny that you bring it up from a war perspective, because most of the conversations I had with people after they'd seen it revolved around gender, and the entire notion that the the demon that we're talking about, real or imagined, this demon is actually sort of like a haunted Shador, at which point you feel like this symbolically is a little, maybe a little too much on the nose. But my favorite scene in that film, and the, the, the one that I keep going back to, is there is a scene, I think it might be the second or third scene in the film, where... She's being interviewed, and it's a two-shot, and there is a picture window in the middle of the frame, and as they are speaking, an explosion goes off. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is so beautifully done Mm -hmm. and says so much in that one one composition, that one use of mise-en-scene, that you really feel like it makes up for what I think are some of the more ham-fisted elements of the film. Yeah, I don't think there is anything ham-fisted, but I do think there is the Iran-Iraq war, which is the horror of the bombings, but just as much of a horror is that this woman is now being forced because of the religious revolution that's happening her life is being taken away from her. And the reason she's in this place is because she refuses to go off to her in-laws, who are Muslim fanatics, and who think that she is uh, some kind of uh, whore of Babylon. And she refuses to, would rather stay in this place where there are bombs going off all the time than go to them. I mean, I can't imagine anything worse than that situation. And there were millions of women in that situation where they had it coming at them two ways. I think it's an amazing film. And it is a first film. 
What about you, Eric? <laughs> uh, camera person is probably my favorite of this group, but I mean, I also, and I love the fits, and we talked about that. I mean, another another of, of the other films that I've seen from the selection, I, I just recently saw Peter in the Farm, mm-hmm. and I really like that. Um, it took me by surprise. What's um, it about? Or could you describe it for? Sure, sure. It's about uh, uh, sure. It's about a farmer in Vermont named Peter Dunning, um, and it's sort of it, it, it's in a sense it's a profile. It's spending about a year or two years or a year plus uh, with this gentleman who's this incredibly gregarious um, store raconteur um, who has been running a farm on his own for quite a while in Vermont. And it's and again, it starts off with just like okay, we're he's going to tell a bunch of stories. We're going to see what he does on his farm, mm-hmm. but elements of his personality and of his life come through over time um, in surprising ways. The the thing that I think that well, there's two things that that really stood out for me about it. Why I've been thinking about it a lot, which is that the relationship between the filmmaking team and Peter uh, over the course of the film is very very unique. There's an intimacy there that is very freely acknowledged. There's conversations that go on between <clears throat> the filmmaker, the producer, and the there's a farmhand who helps as well, where they talk about suicide, where they talk about the pointlessness of existence, they get into existential conversations. There's, there's, there's constantly talking about what they should be filming and what they shouldn't be filming. Peter's always trying to orchestrate certain scenes about like, Actually, we I should I should tell this story again because it would be better if I were in a different location on the farm when I told this, <laughs> and 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 there's this constant acknowledgement of that, which makes you think of a lot of other filmmakers of this films of this nature and mm-hmm. how those could be approached the same way, but this one really elects that kind of collaborative approach. Also, just the, simply the way that it, the way that it's shot and the aesthetic choices of the film is very very unlike certainly unlike many documentaries. Um, there's like a fauvist color palette to it that it's just sort of blazing color um it's incredibly beautiful but also bleak and also just like certain things certain elements in the in the, in the landscape that it fixed that the tony stone the filmmaker fixes on are are very idiosyncratic mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a extended bit where uh, there's some sort of machine that is harvesting um you know for 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 hay bales and and we just put the camera he basically puts the camera in the line of fire of this for an extended period of time and you would never think that it it, it could be just noodling but it's actually just gorgeous someone um, someone fainted at a screening at of yes. this a true false right yes well there's i mean there's a scene like i i, I don't want to ruin it for people but well no you should tip them off to it actually because i walked out Okay. Whoa. <laughs> well, I don't know what scene. If that's, I don't know if that's the scene you walked out. But Tony, I walked out very early. Oh, early. Okay. Um, there, there are there are plenty of. I mean, if if it is a sort of film where if you have a problem with the sort of things that go on on a farm huh. with animals, you should probably not see the movie because there are a lot of there's slaughter, there is milking, there is you know shaving, there is and there is one particular scene which I, I would imagine you didn't get to, Amy, um, where there's defecating, and uh, it is. Amazing, because uh, I've never seen anything like it. I actually don't know cows very well, and I've never seen. And it's one of the most awesome sights, truly, objectively, awesome sights. It's gross, but it's actually awesome because I just have never seen it. But what I was going to say is that it's incredible that this is an auteurist statement because the same director, Tony Stone, made a film called Severed Ways many years ago, which is this very low-budget Viking movie. 
um, which I was also an admirer of, that has a notorious defecation scene. Oh, my God, that's the scene in the woods? Yes. In that movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely gross, yeah. Gross, it, gross and mannered. <laughs> this didn't seem mannered. This was something else. This is something else, yeah. Can, can we give away whether it's Peter or an animal that defecates <laughs> in this, on this farm? It is, it is the animal. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> Which, just which attracted an entirely tough. different audience now. <laughs> <laughs> we got to sell these movies, you guys. <laughs> Work harder. Well, speaking of animals, did you see Neon Bull? I did, yeah. I don't know who else saw but I, yeah, I, I saw it. It was a little while ago, so I don't mm-hmm. have it fresh in my mind. I saw it in uh, Toronto, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and I liked it very much. Uh, another film, uh, the, way that, the way that you said, Amy, and this is a first film, there's something about oh, second. this. Well, it's not, this it may not be the first one, but there's something about it that feels young. Yeah. And there might be, there, there's some elements of it that feel a little bit brash. Yeah. Um, but there is enough lived in aspects of it that I was really taken by it. I love, I mean, it knows what it's doing. It knows that it's playing with gender mm-hmm. issues in a way that, uh, that, are, that is confrontational. But I love how, how, how lived in that is. Yeah. I love how na- absolutely natural it is to have this very sexy, hyper-masculine gentleman who is a dress designer, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, and it, I think it, it, it definitely sells me on that over the course of the film, even though the structure of it is set up to play with my expectations. It's not, right. it's not so lived in that it's not challenging my, ex- it's assuming that I might have a problem with this. And then it sort of, it, it seeps in. But I also mm-hmm. would say that the, the, the sex scene at the end is also something that I was really into. That was an ultimate act of uh, masculinity. I really love that scene. What do straight men do versus what do gay men do with their free time? And then you see what he does. uh, You know, he has sex with the the most heavily pregnant woman ever on screen in this. But but that's super hyper masculine. I think I think so because it's it's like I just feel like I've never just you never see that in in film. That too, and you don't see a pregnant woman pleasured. You don't see tenderness between you don't see a pregnant woman hooking up right like there are all these things that don't seem like hyper like that that seems actually quite in keeping with, with well, and, and usually characters. when you when you watch these films you have to give them your credit card information <laughs> i have to say that just hearing this now neon bull i think between neon bull and tacoon like it sounds these are the two films that i am most looking forward to seeing mm. at new directors and hopefully seeing with a crowd. There were some things that I was able to watch at home prior to coming here because I wanted to make sure, you know, there were films that I missed at festivals or, you know, that I hadn't been able to catch just yet at screenings. And so I'm going to watch them on a laptop. I'm going to watch them on a TV. I'm not proud to admit this, but I'm at Bennigan. <laughs> uh, these two you want but to see but these two specifically, I, I really want to see in a dark theater with a crowd, with a big screen, partially because of what I've heard about Neon Bull, mm. certainly because I've heard of, uh, about Takoon, which sounds incredibly intense and looks, it's supposed to look absolutely gorgeous. I think it's shot in black and white. It just mm. looks haunting. Amy, did you see Neon Bull? I didn't see either of okay. them. Okay, okay. Very curious what you would think. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we'll reconvene in three weeks. All right. <laughs> You've certainly made me want to see it. Oh, oh excellent. That's good. Are there any other films that we didn't get to talk about that you really are burning to endorse or destroy? I would love to endorse Evolution. Yes. Yes. I think it is a wonderful film. I saw it at Toronto. Uh, I was a big fan of her first film is Innocence, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
this is just, I don't think I've stopped thinking about this movie since I since I saw it and it is just this in, incredible coming of age film in a in a weird way. Yeah. Um and I say that in a weird way because normally when you think coming of age film you think about uh, a young boy in 1960 skipping along a creek being like this was the summer that changed my life. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you would describe that film this way. No, um no. there it's like this beautiful sort of feminist fairy tale I guess is how you describe it and it is absolutely gorgeous in a lot of ways I feel like people need to go in cold the way that I did to see this and so I don't want to say too much Mm -hmm. Uh, but I will say that it's just one of those immersive experiences uh, that make you glad to see films on the big screen still Mm -hmm. glad to see films in an immersive environment Um, it really is just like it's so overwhelming and beautiful it was funny, I was watching it and my roommate came home and he started watching it with me too and he's an absolute horror buff and he's like, oh my God, this is like Cronenberg, this is like body horror. And I was like, <laughs> but it's but it's also not. Like I agree with you, but I don't agree with well, you. Well, it's fundamentally different in some yeah. ways. I mean, I love Cronenberg yeah. to death, but like this is so clearly somebody coming from a different place. Oh, absolutely. But, but riffing on some of the same things and caring about a lot of the same things. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, it, it's funny, like in a, in, a, in a very, maybe I'm going off the road too far but to me I have a similar feeling about this film that I do The Fits in that uh, again here's this moment where we're doing a lot of talking about self-representation self mm-hmm. and people telling their own stories and having their own voices things that I care about but I love that The Fits is a white woman telling a story that is entirely populated by non-white people mm-hmm. and there's something about it that feels right and mm-hmm. and and open-ended and creative and curious and observant and I think and respectful f- without being hermetic either yeah that's a great way of putting it and I feel like evolution is uh, we're going to call it a feminist fairy tale and yet it's about the experiences of young boys and the relationships mm-hmm. with young boys and their mothers um, and the absolute utter confusion of being separated uh, like there's something so elemental about it but it's elemental that is not primarily experiencing what this filmmaker this female filmmaker necessarily is her own experience it's actually very empathetic Mm -hmm. um and i just i i i'm really excited by that are there any other films well i could talk about a film i didn't like at all (laughs) oh oh i love it when you're bad i love it when you're bad amy do it really i always think it's so unfair please kill me did anyone else see please kill me no no. Which is also a first film by a Brazilian female filmmaker. And it's all those things that people think, oh, wow, she's being so outspoken. I mean, really, it's about high school girls living in this town that's half built with a big housing complex at one end. And there is one or more serial rapists on the loose. And so they keep finding bodies. And one of the young women, maybe 15, all of them begin to have these fantasies about desiring to be raped and murdered while having sex. And, you know, the forbidden fantasy. And they begin talking about them. And then they begin walking around like, could I get caught tonight? Like, zombies. And then at a certain point, you begin to think that these are, I mean, there is nothing in the film that is not a fantasy, but it has never been my experience that 
I mean, this seems not real, but it is something that people want to say, like you want to make, a, do you want to make a film about gay men who have fantasies about Nazis? And how true is that? And how, especially when it's simplistically shown, this is shown extremely simplistically. And, um, you know, it's one of those films that people say, oh, how courageous. You know, that's, that's the forbidden unspoken. But it's not that I think at what all. What sort of scares me is when I read the catalog note for this, the film that you've described, it says, with nods to Brian De Palma, Jacques Tonnerre, and the atmospheres of David Lynch. Yes, they want to sell it as a horror film. Clearly. But it isn't quite. I mean, she doesn't either doesn't want to make a horror film, she doesn't know how to make a horror film. It isn't that. So you have no idea if this is a fantasy, if these are all dream sequences, have no idea, or if the primary young woman is really the serial killer herself. Mm. Well, I mean, not having seen the film, I'm not going to chime in on the film, but I think what is interesting, I'm thinking about in terms of you're talking about it, and some of what we've alluded to and referring to some other films that we may have had some issues with, is that there is, with young filmmakers, there is a a tendency uh, to work in areas of provocation, and that plays well in terms of getting attention to young filmmakers and reads well in in description copy if you're talking about Mm -hmm. getting people to see your films at a festival or getting programmers to pay attention there's something that's inevitable about that i think that there's and sometimes that works out quite well and other times it it's a bit empty the provocation yeah i think for for every example of like i keep going back to gaspar noe and i stand alone and i remember seeing that film in the 90s after i'd read a little bit about it and so i knew there was some provocation and stuff and then it's one thing to sort of read about that film and then to actually see it and experience it and how you're sort of laughing and cringing and being scared and horrified all at the same time where you understand how provocation is being used in a way that is incredibly effective and part of that filmmaker's sensibility versus the easy sort of shock cinema that I think a lot of young filmmakers feel they have to do to stand out or to make an impact or to really make somebody feel like there's been some sort of short, sharp shock they have they've given them in lieu of actually being able to make an articulate, cogent expression just yet. I mean, it's one of these, I'm interesting you're both seeing Neon Bull because it's, it is a film that I think flirts with some of that provocation, but I think ultimately pulls a lot of it off and has, and has something to say behind that provocation, but it, it leans in that direction. Like, you could also definitely read it that way, too. Like, oh, of course, that's, those, are, those are great provocative choices right. if you want to get attention for as a young filmmaker. Someone's going to yell neon bullshit <laughs> at the end of it. I guarantee it. <laughs> and if no one does it, you're screening, you should do it. <laughs> Dear listener. So <laughs> are, are, are we, are we, do we have time for anything more? Or are we wrapping up? If you want to, if you want to do one more. Well, I mean, I feel like we've, we've all seen Wiener. Have we not? Yeah. Why? Oh, we are we going to go? We're going to go there. Let's go to Wiener. Okay. I could do it really fast. Okay. He had very good access because he knew the subject really well. The subject did not bail when circumstances worked out in a way that was to his disadvantage. But this was a film that desperately needed to disclose the rules in the film because obviously there were places that they were not allowed to go. And I want to know where those lines were drawn in the making. 
just like, you can't follow me into the bathroom. No, you can't. I mean, those very, very, very simple rules. And they were clearly scenes in the film where they're being asked to... Can you could you please leave us for a second, or we need to discuss this, or you know, can you take off? And those don't those don't feel staged. They no, certainly feel like and those they are don't. That but there aren't that many. And then you start to think, well, why haven't I seen this or that? Was there a rule against it? Well, that is just fine. Mm. But they needed to disclose them. I think I often want that information too, but it's I, I don't know that I would use the word disclosed because I feel like I don't I don't know I don't know that it's about disclosing. I mean, it is about disclosure, but I, I yeah, guess because it's pretending wanna, uh, to be a verite film. But but verite films are always there are rules behind every verite film. There's yeah, always but, a line. But they usually disclose. Mm. This film does mm. not disclose. I don't, I, don't, I don't. I think there are plenty of films that we could point to that it's not disclosed, but we accept the terms of what they are. You know, I, I don't know. Suspension um, of disbelief for documentary. I, I like. I I know what you're talking yeah. about. There is like this weird thing where it's like, I'm on. A, I'm a fly on the wall. To a point, <laughs> I, I, well, I feel like I feel like films, even verite films, mm-hmm. establish rules, and whether or not they state them, we know them or we understand. Mm-hmm. Them. They're often not explicit, but they are there. And I yeah. think that maybe, uh, so that's why I was thinking. For me, it's not about disclosure. I had some, some I had some issues with the film as well, and additional uh, problems with them. And I think to me, it's not about whether or not it states what the rules are for here, but I actually think that it's quite unfair to the subjects in the way that it uses its access and what it makes of its access. You, you had described, Amy, the fact that like the subjects allowed them to keep going after a certain point when they could have pulled away, and that certainly makes the movie. My problem is, and, and maybe this is an, an addendum to the conversation about young filmmakers, and, 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 and the, this isn't about provocation necessarily, but there's a sort of taste for the scandal aspect of this, that to me it's too easy and obvious to press on the elements of this film that are about um, people being uncomfortable and people being exposed to scandal the way that they are. Um, and I think that there are moments where we are licking our lips, that we're like we're just so eager to see these things unfold before our eyes. And I don't know that the filmmakers have figured out a way of making that an idea or something that is interesting or that has any depth behind it. I think it's too much for effect. And there's an element of exploitation there, which is not a word that I use all that in, all that easily and all that with, with, with much force behind it because I really do feel like it's always exploitation. But there is an element here that I think they're looking to exploit their subjects maybe unconsciously in a way that that frustrates me because it's just too easy like we exploit like finding a way of making uh, making wiener look awkward is i expected going in that i'd see like hours of him being awkward i don't need awkward cuts between him and his wife that shows me that they're having an awkward moment to me it's like you could almost like have a soundtrack in those moments uh, uh, you know like like a, a, a gif on, on online <laughs> where like you'd show a cut and then like the, the text would say awkward i mean yes i know i expect that this is an incredibly yeah. awkward situation What's happening here? What is, what, 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 what can I take from this? Because she's such an, I mean, she is such an interesting person herself. Yeah. Like, sure. and it's like, I mean, she meaning uh, his wife, Huma. Huma yeah. Do, do they, I mean, I haven't seen the film. Do they get into like her entire life up at this point? Like, they, they, they don't. And I will argue, Eric and I had actually had a conversation about this very thing recently. Uh, I would argue that she is the single most interesting person in this film. Yeah. She's the only interesting. She's the, <laughs> that, that's arguable, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I see what you're saying. Uh, and I, I often find that myself getting 
as much as there are moments in this film that I find incredibly fascinating mm -hmm. and and that there are moments of filmmaking that I think of documentary filmmaking that I think are like oh those that's, that was very deft how they did that um, there are equal equally frustrating moments I had with that film and I think that part of the reason is the most interesting person the real subject the real person who should be the subject of this film is left on the periphery yeah. and it is a lot of the scenes with Huma and what is she's going through and what she's trying when we talk about disclosure uh, what she's trying not to disclose for the camera how she is trying to mask her emotions how she's trying to I, I hate to use the phrase eat away the pain but you consistently see her eating pizza in these moments of trauma and I start to wonder what is going on with her what is going on in her head what is her story when is she going to run for office she's clearly the most compelling charismatic no. politician here <laughs> and and my other problem with this film, if I can just get into this very briefly, <laughs> is that this film started off as one thing. It was mm -hmm. it was meant to be a chronicle of, of the comeback kid story. Mm -hmm. And it ended up turning into something else when the scandal broke and they kept filming and they suddenly realized they were in the middle of a media shitstorm. And the idea that they would be, make a portrait of what it's like to be in the dead center of that, that kind of situation... And then by the end of it, and they said this in a Q&A that I had moderated with them with them recently, they said, well, what the film is really about is that it's about how the media has corrupted, you know, how we view politics. And <laughs> This guy, Carlos Danger. Carlos Danger. He's the victim here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I, it started, as much as I have, you know, a lot of respect for the two filmmakers who made this film, I, I started to think, like, you haven't really figured out what this is yet, have yeah. you? Like, you're still kind of working this out. And... This is problematic. Hello, this film is being released this fall. It's being released a month before the election. How strange. Yes, indeed. <laughs> she thought it was in the spring. They've moved it to the fall? At Sundance, they said they were doing it in the fall. Hmm. Uh, well, a I mean, month a, before yeah, the election. And there we have Huma, whose story parallels Hillary's to the utmost yeah. and is still Hillary's assistant, and they've made this film, and they absolutely intended to release it exactly when it's being released. That's extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, a, there's something that, that, that you and I talked about as well, David, but there's, a, there's and I'm sort of stealing my own thunder because I'm in the middle of a piece writing about this, but there's, there's, a, there's a line in the film, uh, which is a, it's, it's a withering, tough line where the filmmakers actually speak to, to Anthony Weiner and say, during a very awkward moment, why have you allowed us to film this? And it has a, a, it has great effect. I had a very different effect than I think was intended. Because for me, that is an irresponsible question for a documentarian to ask. <laughs> to me, if you're showing me that in the film, if you're electing to see that, I'm not thinking about why Wiener has let him, you, sh you depict this. I'm thinking, why are you filming? Right. I want to know why you're filming, and I still, like you were saying, David, I don't know that they know why they were filming, and so they're asking for Wiener to tell them why they're making this movie, I think and that's not enough. I would argue yeah. that that scene is an attempt to address the elephant in the room, or at least one of the many elephants that <laughs> parade through that room at any given moment, and I think it's interesting that they kept that in the film, yeah. or that they kept the camera running when they asked him, as opposed to... Yeah. to them turning it off and just having a one-on-one -on -one conversation that we were not going to be privy to. Uh, I'm just not convinced that they have the, that the, the the effect was the intended one. Well, and and what what's his answer? In a, in a he lot of ways, he doesn't answer. He barely answers, and 
Because I you, think they're thinking they're making a movie about like, wow, this guy is obsessed with attention and and he's a, and, and he needs to be running for office and that's some psychological flaw or tick that we think that we're exposing here. Or, and I don't think, and maybe that's true, but it's just not what, as interesting as what are you looking to get out of this? Why are you putting the camera here? And it's a pity because I think there is an incredibly interesting story about Anthony Weiner in here in which the very same thing that makes him such a formidable politician especially a formidable you know democrat as the sort of montage of him being on the senate floor taking on gop opponents you know shows repeatedly is the same thing his inability to back away from a fight is the same thing that ends up partially undoing him not totally because clearly the scandals had more than a little something to do with that but it goes back to that scene when he ends up being confronted by somebody in a bagel shop and he can't let the argument go and it ends up kind of the last shred of dignity that he's got in this campaign ends up going by the wayside. And he even later says, I have this innate ability to just fuck everything up. And it's all coming from the same place. And I really wish they'd zeroed in on that a little well, bit more. Well, they do. In the very opening of the film, they have the quote that right. um, a man is, is a, he's cursed or he's forced to live within the name he's been given. I mean, it's an absolutely great quote, and I can't get it right. And a lovely double entendre, of course. Yes. You're right, but I feel like that's a very pithy introduction to a film called Wiener that I think never gets past that notion. I don't know how far beyond that notion we get. I don't know if you need to get past that notion. I think you just need to mull about that notion. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of mulling, that's for sure. But I, I just... Don't, I mean, I think he can get, I think that quote takes care of him. And then they really don't have a film because he is not of interest. She is of interest. Yeah, I, She's I wanna, of great interest. I want to see a documentary called Huma. <laughs> well, I don't think you will because I think they... Whatever, she would never allow no, it. No, whatever never. their rules were, I think they got as much as they could possibly get out of yeah. her. I'm sure if they had more, they would have shown us more. She was just not going to give much to them. So it's hard to fault the film for not having more Huma because I feel like they probably are showing, you know, everything. And yet I'm going to fault the film for just that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that I think this film will play well. I think it'll be released in the fall and, 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 and be perfectly timed in that respect. But I'm fascinated by the fact that it was at True False Film Festival, which is sort of the art of documentary filmmaking. It's in new directors, new films. It's getting... There are there are programmers that are really enamored with this film, and I'm a little bit surprised. It won at Sundance. It won at Sundance. It won it the prize. Yeah. Um, so there's something there that maybe the three of us are, are struggling with, but there are other people who are seeing a lot more, and I'm I'm very curious about that. I guess we'll just have to leave on a note of curiosity. We'll end on a note of curiosity. Um, so, as we always do, we're going to close by going around and saying uh, one film that we saw recently that we really liked. Um, Eric is shrinking. You, I won't start with you. And I'll go first so everyone can think of one. Think of a real good one. Uh, so a film that I saw recently that I really liked was The Love Witch. It's, uh, it's really funny, and hopefully I'll write about it at some point when it comes out. But it's uh, this weird throwback to like a 70s it's almost, it's sort of like Season of the Witch, uh, Romero's Season of the Witch, but not at all. It's just, it's like set in the 70s. It has all of these sort of markers of the 70s, but it's possibly happening now. It's in this small town where this woman 
Uh, she's a witch. She moves there after killing her ex-husband out of revenge because he didn't love her anymore. And all these other witches are very much about like the matriarchy and female empowerment. And she just wants to use her powers of witchcraft to attract men. And she only cares, like she's completely bought into the patriarchy in this really sad way. And she's this totally pathetic character, but she's a witch. And it has these really amazing things to say about gender and more, like even more impressively, it just like is the best it's just shot really well. It's very funny in an effortless way, and it just looks great. So, I'm I can't recommend it enough. It's, I have it's to see this. It's called again what? The Love Witch. The Love Witch. Not to be confused with the witch. No. No love there. <laughs> Amy. Uh, Valeria Bruni Tedeschi's Three Sisters. Simply the best Three Sisters I've ever seen in my life. It'll never be released because it's in this series of famous directors doing plays that the Comédie Française was already done on the stage and in collaboration with Arte, and the rights are, I think, impossible to get. And so you can go, and if you're in France, you probably could stream it without English titles. But the English titles are really amazing. You have this very multi-leveled, she does the text, abridged, but she does it, and she makes this one major change, which is that in the beginning, it's the youngest sister's 20th birthday, and she's given a samovar, and for the rest of the play, the family gathers around it, and here she's given a film projector. This is 1895. It's probably impossible that it could have been in the provinces in Russia, but it was the birth of cinema, that is, and you just begin to think about time and film throughout this. And Chekhov is all about time. It's about how will they see us, the future, what will the future be, how will we be remembered? And suddenly, well, they're being remembered because you are seeing them in this movie you are watching now where they are watching the birth of cinema. It's amazing. I'm going to cheat a little bit. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to name two. All right. Uh, very, very different movies. Uh, although both about time, coincidentally. There is a Polish film called All These Sleepless Nights. It played Sundance. I'm assuming it's eventually going to make its way to theaters, hopefully near you. It is like a masculine feminine for millennials. If the children of Marx and Coca-Cola were the new children the next generation of Drake and Red Bull. It is this absolutely extraordinary docu-fiction hybrid. Eric, what is the name of the filmmaker, the Polish documentarian? Uh, Michał Marsak. You say that so beautifully. I just Thank really you. wanted to hear you say Thank that. You. Sexy you. as hell. Uh, and it, it essentially, this documentarian follows around these two men in their 20s, their art school students, these friends, and it's really just kind of about the two of these men drifting. It is one of the best portraits of youth that I have seen since God knows when. Mm-hmm. Although, actually, I can tell you, it's mm-hmm. the best movie I've seen since I saw Richard Linklater's Everybody Wants Some, oh. uh, which I have now seen twice. And if the projectionist had let me, I would have ran one more time <laughs> just right after the end credits had rolled. Richard Linklater had been talking about making what he'd called a spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused uh, for years. And specifically, he wanted to make a film that partially talked about his experience as a college baseball player in the early 80s. 
And so he finally got around to making this story. It essentially takes place three days before the first day of college classes. It follows this young rookie baseball player who's essentially going to move into this off-campus house that the school has given to these these baseball jocks. And it's three days, essentially, of him getting to know these guys, of them using party as a verb, of them <laughs> trying on all these different identities. They, there's a point where they show up at a disco, because it's the 80s and disco is still big in Texas, apparently. And they're wearing these lovely polyester shirts and doing the hustle, and then they get kicked out of that bar and so they go to a cowboy bar and they all put Stetsons on and it, it's straight out of Urban Cowboy. And then uh, later they end up, they run into a friend who is taking them to a Texas hardcore show and they're all running around these sort of mosh pits. And it's this beautiful, much like Days to Confuse, it's this beautiful almost kind of narrative list, evocation of just hanging out, of what happens when you're in that moment where your identity is still malleable and you're still figuring out who you are and maybe you're going to be some dude bro douchey jock or maybe you're going to be the sensitive guy that is actually going to like listen to people and try and make more of themselves and not just get drunk on Everclear punch every night um it's it's amazing there is a there's an actor in it called Glenn Powell who I swear to god is going to be a big star in the same way that Matt McConaughey has his moments in Days and Confused where you're just like who is this guy and he ended up going on to to bigger if not better things uh, I feel like there, Glenn Powell is this actor who plays this, the human embodiment of like smarm and masculine charm. This this like very handsome kind of jockish guy who is consistently on the make. It is such a great performance. It is such an incredible movie. It is it absolutely left me on this really huge high. I would love to actually see this on a double feature with all these sleepless nights. I feel like That's that amazing. to me would just I would die from bliss. <laughs> I would just be going to a cinecoma. <laughs> Ah, uh, boys and their movies. Boys, <laughs> boys and their movies. Well done, deserved. I, 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 it's hard for me to hearing you talk about all these sleepless nights makes me want to talk about all these sleepless nights. But I feel like I've done that plenty. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've do I've, it again. Check I've, out I've, Eric's I've, column I've in this issue, of, the, the current I, issue of Film. I can't comment. stop watching it, and and one of the reasons I can't stop watching it is because I don't think it's a perfect movie in any way. But I'm so fascinated by how it works because um, I don't think it works like many other movies. Um, I, I mentioned, I, I think I mentioned it, I spent last weekend at, at True Falls Film Fest in Columbia, Missouri, uh, and I go there, this is my sixth year that I've been, and it's a it's pretty much my favorite weekend of the year, and so there's a number of films that I saw there that are floating in my head that I'm thinking about writing about, and I think the real great discovery of the festival for a lot of people who were there um, was this Iranian filmmaker, um, talk about pronunciation, Merdad Oskue, I think, um, although I'm not sure if that pronunciation makes any sense for an Iranian name, but that's how it looks. His latest film is called Starless Dreams, and uh, really amazed that uh, it's a filmmaker that I'd never heard of that would be working in such a, 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 a way that I feel like it's a sort of filmmaking in documentary filmmaking that I, I think can play anywhere. It solves that equation of being very very particular in what it's about and where it's set and yet it's very easy to feel it and to relate to it and to be brought into it um <clears throat> it's set in a a, a a detention center or basically uh, the equivalent of a, of, a, of a youth prison for a young women under the age of 18 and uh you get to know a handful of these women over the course of the film, and it's both observing their behavior and observing where they sleep and how they eat and how they spend their time, as well as 
as, as interviews as well as uh, I wouldn't talking head is not correct because it's in their own environment and the camera's just there and sometimes it's a planned interview and sometimes it's just okay like this just happened what was that about and there's there's an acknowledgement of the filmmaker and the apparatus of the film that is not about calling it it's not about going meta and calling attention to itself it's about in a sense setting the rules as Amy you were talking before about okay, this is where we are, this is where they are, there's a difference, there's a gulf, we're gonna try to traverse that gulf. If we get there, we do, if we don't, you're gonna know that we're trying to traverse that gulf in both directions. There's something about that that is effortless. Mm-hmm. It, it's not effortless, but it really feels effortless to, to acknowledge the apparatus of the film and the intervention of the filmmaker and the, and the strange, unique relationship of a filmmaker and 16-year-old girls mm-hmm. in that environment, and yet, for that to be a way in rather than layers of things that are in the way, really something else. So um, I don't know when that film is going to play anywhere else. It's for my knowledge. I don't know if his films have played in, in the United States before this. I, I, I'm very eager to see it, it, these films get places. And it was great to see a community of people respond to it in the middle of America when you know, I, I don't know of New York or LA having ever played in movies. So. Well, I mean, Missouri is a serious place for movies. For that weekend, for certainly for that <laughs> yes. weekend. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.